So Deirdre, welcome. It's great to see you. Well, I'm glad to be here at Cato. So I've been thinking about how to start this interview, and it, it, it occurred to me uh, in a sort of playful way, let us, let us transport ourselves into 2024 or 2025, and you get the phone call from the Nobel Prize Committee in Oslo. Yes. <laughs> and it's the big news. Yeah. Um, you know, these, these prizes tend to be accompanied with a short statement about yeah. what people have accomplished in their yeah. academic work. What would a statement like that say about you? Well, if it was done well, and I would hope they would, <laughs> although uh, they, 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 would emph they would say that I've proposed and to some degree proven a new theory, which is also an old theory, of why we're rich. Why the world went from $2 a day in current prices in 1800, worldwide, you know, if you were a king or a high priest, you, you were higher than that, but the average person, $2 a day for consumption, up to $45 a day on average now. And my, my explanation um, is not railways or trade or even legal change or institutions particularly, but is ideas. In particular, the master idea of liberalism. The idea that we should be adults, free adults, that no one should be a slave. The idea that hierarchy naturalized, we'd say in the English department, naturalized hierarchy. That is, oh, you're just a peasant, you stay a peasant, I'm the Lord, shut up. That kind of stuff started to, how can I say, started to erode, at least in people's minds, theorists' minds, Adam Smith, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, uh, Voltaire, started to erode in the, in the 1700s. And that, I claim, is what gave people the permission, equality of permission, to invent the modern world. It's, it's a, in a way, it's completely obvious, <laughs> because after all, if you decide to go downtown today, it happens in your head. <laughs> it doesn't happen in your, in your big toe. It happens in your mind. So any change, any innovation has to be in people's mind. And the big innovation was liberalism, which gradually took hold in the 19th century and the 20th. Gradually, people were freed now, from being slaves. Given that this interview will be seen in different uh, geographical areas, mm -hmm. we should probably define liberalism because th there is a difference between how Europeans think about "quote unquote" liberalism and Americans do. Absolutely. In the, I'm using the word in the, um, in the original European way. You might call it classical 
liberalism, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, um, uh, that kind. Uh, whereas in the United States, it, it, um, it became, in the last 100 years, to mean essentially social democracy. Mm -hmm. A more progressivism almost. Progressivism. In yeah. fact, that, that was the name for it 100 ye years we ago. Had, I, I read somewhere that um, uh, it was as a result of the disaster of the Woodrow Wilson administration uh, that, I, that progressives sort of said, we no longer want to be called progressives, we want to be called liberals, because back then it still had a certain cachet, that word. I, Am I wrong on that? No, I don't think you are. I think, uh, I, I think that's true. That, but the idea of the so-called new liberalism, which would be another specifically American and British word phrase, began in the 1880s in, in Britain, uh, where instead of saying, we're all going to be adults now, you're free, you're not going to be a slave, they, the, the new liberalism, which was actually anti-liberal, was said, well, and, but we in the government, we know what you want or what's, what's good for you. So I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, was the new mantra. And that ha the, the great liberal party in Britain moved more and more that way by, uh, uh, by, by uh, under, uh, uh, under Lloyd George. For example, in the early 20th century, it was very much welfareist. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we also have to distinguish between new liberalism of the 1880s, say, and then neoliberalism, which comes a uh, hundred years later, and it's called, well, neoliberalism. As, well, as it's, it's kind of the, that neoliberalism word is kind of a swear word on, on the left. Um, our friends and I have lots of friends on the left. I was once on the left. I was once a, a, a socialist when I was a kid. Um, it, they, they mean, that means an aggressive foreign policy, for example, of a sort that I don't approve of. I don't think the United States having 800 military bases around the world, as it does, is a good idea. I just don't think, I don't. So I'm, I'm a liberal, <laughs> 19th century style. I'm for liberty. And I don't, and it, I, I don't think the state, the government, should be big and powerful. I think it should be small and competent. And, and just one more thing about this terminology, this word that everyone wants to take over and change into their own thing. In Latin America, liberal tends to mean pro-business policies to enrich already rich people in, um, imposed by the army. <laughs> so it doesn't mean freedom from hierarchy because the army's on top and it says, no, you're gonna, we're gonna do it this way. That's the tragedy of modern Chile. Yeah. 
And um, uh, classical liberals obviously believe in competition in the markets. They don't believe in supporting big businesses. Um, they don't. In fact, for, for instance, take a recent case, Mariana Mazzucato, a very intelligent um, young economist, she, um, she advocates industrial policy. And people as diverse as, uh, 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 well, a lot of United States politicians have said, oh, yeah, we're going to have industrial policy, <laughs> which, which consists of the somewhat strange idea when you think about it that a bureaucrat in Washington or London or Paris can do a better job of deciding whether to put up a new building in Chicago or Birmingham or Bordeaux than someone on the scene, or to start a new line of research better than the scientists or engineers doing the research. Yeah. I do have a lot of friends on the sort of solutionist or uh, techno-optimist side of the yeah. debate who yeah. are quite attracted to the notion of the government spending much more money on R&D. Yeah. Um, I understand their point, but my response to them always is, if there was one lesson that we have learned during the Cold War in the struggle between the communist system and the capital system is that top-down allocation of resources, including capital, simply doesn't work because the bureaucrat doesn't does know where the innovation is going to come there, from. There, there's a, I'm, I'm an uh, Anglican, uh, and we call it Episcopalian in the United States, but we're, we're sort of Catholic light, is what they, they call us. Um, and there's a Catholic social t teaching, which I approve of, not the whole of it, but this one item, about, um, what's the word, um, what's the word they use, uh, subsidiarity, which says the decision, any decision about anything should be made at the lowest level that it can be done competently at. Closest to the people. Closest so. to the people. So we've done in the United States a good deal of privatizing of, say, garbage disposal trash collection. Now there's a tendency for it to be corrupt, but still, if it's, if, if, imagine if trash collection in the United States were governed from Washington. I mean, it would not work very well, I can pretty much guarantee. And the, and, and the same thing holds, uh, you know, I see it, I, I have such a hard time with my friends on the left because they, they don't get this, and I don't know quite why. They think that business is easy. I suppose that's part of it. Uh, they're professors and journalists and so on, and they, they sort of think, oh, well, running a small business or a large one must be that, that. That's for stupid people. We, clerisy, as I call them, we intellectuals and writers and preachers and so on, <laughs> We, we're the smart ones, and they're there. So it must be that business is easy. There's also, a, I, I wonder if there is a sort of a rejection of profit and the notion that if you leave the private sector and 
you become part of government, a public official. Somehow you have completely um, gotten rid of all the personal the desires and, and, um, and biases that somehow you are turned into a human robot. That's right. Who will just make the right calls that's depending right. on evidence and rationality? That's, right. that's, that's not right. how it is, is it? That's, that's a very strong feeling on the left and to some degree on the right and in another key as sort of in, 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 in musical terms. But yeah, the, the people will say, we in a functioning democracy like the United States have voted for these people in Washington. So that takes care of it. They must be our servants. We say uh, a public service. And um, as you said, the, the, the theory of the public servants is that they're just really nice and very smart. And you know, I have, I have cousins who work for the government and they're very nice and very smart. But <laughs> you can't be that smart to solve what, um, what, what, what Friedrich Hayek called the knowledge problem, which is that I know what, what kind of ice cream I like and someone remote, way far away, doesn't know what kind of ice cream I like. And so the best way of getting that message that I like, actually, vanilla, um, it, it is through, through, through prices, through bids, so that I put my money where my mouth is and buy vanilla. And then that gets transmitted, that information, as though by an invisible hand, gets transmitted back to the ice cream maker. Um, uh, um, what's it called? John and Jerry's, what, what's? Ben, ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's. They keep trying out new flavors. And you know, when they find that uh, castor oil ice cream is not popular, they drop it because no one buys it. Right. So uh, Matt Ridley likes to talk about the fact that every day in London, 10 million people get their lunch. Yeah, but yes. there is not a lunch commissar who exactly. knows no. or can calculate how many avocados London needs Absolutely. every day or how many uh, pounds of um, turkey or whatever. Um, things simply work out through the spontaneous workings of the market. Uh, one day you have too little ham, so you order a little more until right. you That's right. And, and the same thing holds for many other parts of our lives lives. Language, for example, is a spontaneous order. There's no commissar of language, of the English language or the Spanish language. It, it, it evolves. We try out new expressions. Uh, every teenage girl in the United States says, whatever, meaning I, I dismiss that. And that came from the valley outside of Los Angeles or in Los Angeles a long time ago. And the same is true of friendship. There's no commissar of friendship. We make our friends and we, 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 we have a circle of friends. And, and the same is true of art and music and science. They're all spontaneous orders. And, I, and see, the, the thing is that people forget 
it's sort of like the old story of the fish in the water doesn't know there's water, so to speak. He just fish, he just does his his fish life without thinking he's in water, um, and we have spontaneous orders all over the place. Yet we think there are only two things. There's my action. I raise my arm as a philosophical example, my single action, and there's top-down governance. But actually, most of our life is in the middle here. And a free society is one in which art and science and friendship and language and the economy can spontaneously evolve. You said that um, some of your friends, maybe members of your family, work in the public sector. You say they are not stupid. They are, um, you know, nice. hardworking and all that. And jazz. they're good people. They're nice people. Um, I assure you. I, I think that what matters here a lot is incentives. Exactly. So when I came to Washington um, as a uh, as a youngling, um, I, I and a good libertarian, I wanted to believe that politicians were just dumb. Yeah, yeah. But then I started meeting them, and I realized that they are very smart people. Sure. And in uh, in many instances, highly read. People, so intelligent as well as well informed. Yeah. So I sort of started asking myself, what explains this yeah. disaster, which is the federal government, and yeah. there must be some set of incentives which drive these people toward, um, you know, completely ignoring fiscal responsibility and things like that. Just like, say, at a DMV, you don't have to smile at your customer, you don't have to be nice to your customer because you know that you are unfireable. Yeah. The corollary of that, the, the, the other set of incentives for politicians, is that so long as they give the populace exactly what it wants, no matter how harmful in the long run, they will get re-elected. Re well, yeah, and, and, and I, I agree with that. This is the, there's, a, there's a line and an excellent body of research in economics called public choice, which talks about, which, talk, which, which, which inquires seriously into how governments actually behave. And as you point out, there are massive incentives, which we actually know about as, as ordinary people. We know that the politicians want to get reelected. And we know that they're, they're, uh, you know, they're exaggerating how easily they can fix, I don't know, the economy. But I think there's something else, which is ideology. Sincere convictions. So I, although I'm an economist and I know about incentives and yeah, you're right, there's also faith. There's not just the virtue of prudence, but there's the virtue or in this case sometimes vice of faith. And so people sincerely believe in, uh, I don't know, that they can, they can uh, arrange your life. There was, a, there was a very amusing example in Sweden, it must have been about eight or ten years ago, where literally the government came out with a report on how much toothpaste you should put on your toothbrush. And some fool in the government decided that would be a good idea and recommended two centimeters I mean, come on, <laughs> give over, as the as the as the kids say. This is this is 
insane. And that kind of, but, but it, it, undoubtedly this person was sincerely des, desirous of helping the, the, uh, the ordinary citizens. See, the problem is the analogy with the family. When you're a mother, you teach your child how much toothpaste to put on. And there's a very powerful thought in many people's minds that our society, our polity, our economy should also be a family. And that mama and papa will tell us what to do. And it's, so, so another word for this kind of liberalism, I always stutter in the word liberal, it's irritating, um, would be adultism. That instead of treating people as, you know, stupid, um, you treat them as adults. And, and again, this, this matter, adults within working within a spontaneous order, this thing in between the government, the rules, the laws, which we need, we need the laws, and the action that I'm going to eat, eat another spoonful of ice cream, which is my individual choice, there's a spontaneous order. Let's, uh, let's, let's remain on this subject for a while. Yeah, let's so, do one of the points that I've heard you make before is that is, is about this difference between the family on the one hand yeah. and the broader society, national economy, perhaps even global economy as a whole. Right. So Hayek talks about the micro world and the macro world. The micro world is the family where the relationships between people are not run according to the rules of the marketplace. You don't send out your six-year-old son to work to pay for lunch that you're going to provide for. That's right. So it's not a strict quid pro quo. In fact, it's socialism. In fact, it's from each according to her ability to each according to his need. And it's, it's lovely and appropriate and good for children. <laughs> and for family. Now, now, so why can it not be scaled to the global economy? The, the issue here is that if we still had an economy the size of a family, yeah. the, the Greeks have a word for it, oikonomia, it's really just household economy. Right. If we still had the economy the size of a family, we would be incredibly poor. The reason why we are super rich today by historical standards is because we have a global economy where people, billions of people specialize. Yeah. But the rules of the global economy, the macro world that Hayek talks about, are very different from the rules of the economy in the, the micro world, yeah, which is the family. So why cannot it be scaled? It can't be scaled because of the usual things that economists talk about, free rider problems, St. Paul said to a group of early Christians whom he had visited, I've been told that you, in anticipation of the second coming of, of Christ, have stopped working. 
He who does not work shall not eat, said St. Paul. And that's the problem of free writing. Oh, well, he'll take, he'll, I'll, I'll, there, there'll be enough food because he and she, they're working and I'm, I'm just going to pray or just wait for, 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 for Jesus to show up tomorrow. Why, why should I work? And uh, so there's, there's that. And then there are impersonal arm's length rules of exchange, which are not how we run households. We run households on love and uh, uh, prudence, but in, in, in the larger society, it has to be justice and prudence. You, you've got to um, have rules that you, you got to pay your debts and you can't just walk away from uh, uh, your responsibilities. That word responsibility functions both in the family and in, in the society as a whole. Um, but they're not the same responsibilities. Now look, I, I don't want to carry this too far because I think we do have a responsibility of love to other people. I'm a Christian liberal. I could be a Muslim liberal or a Hindu li li and have the same opinion, namely that we, that we owe uh, the handicapped and, and, uh, and the oppressed help. Um, we, we owe the U Ukrainians protection against an invasion by their, their neighbor. So there, there, there's a cosmopolitanism which is characteristic of the modern world where we care about the Uyghurs oppressed in China. So it's not just self-interest and incentives and markets. And there's one more point. The larger society, the larger the market is, the more global we are, the more innovations we get. As the society enriches, more people go to engineering school and more people can get a little money to start a little business. Whole Foods started with one store in Austin. Uh, um, uh, uh, um, McDonald's started with a little chain of restaurants in California. And so innovation is really, it's true that specialization, exchange, is crucial. Actually, St. Paul had something to say on that too in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the variety of gifts that people have with the implication that we should use our gifts to help each other. And we do if we have market incentives and, 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 the, and, and the rule of law and are not engaged in a big civil war. But there's, there's also the um, release of creativity in a free society. So it would be possible for a strictly centrally planned economy worldwide. Suppose we were all communists, uh, everyone in the world. And as you know from your personal experience recently, about a quarter to a third of the world was communist. That could 
do the exchanges quite efficiently. It could operate on an arm's length, length rule of law so far as specialization was concerned. It didn't actually, but it could. But the creativity of free adults is what's evoked, called out in liberalism. And for innovation, you need a good deal of economic freedom. You need a great deal of economic One reason why perhaps we shouldn't be as worried about China in the long run no. as we are no. is precisely right. because it is a society where the freedom to speak, think, exchange ideas, publish ideas, critique ideas is heavily constricted. Exactly. But let me, uh, let me focus on this distinction between trade and exchange and innovation. Um, I read maybe in your friend's uh, Joel Mokier's uh, work about the difference between what he called the Smithian growth and the Schumpeterian growth. The Smithian growth being based on specialization and exchange, That's right. whereas the Schumpeterian growth is based on innovation and creative destruction. That's right. Can we explore these ideas a little more? And then, then um, first of all, do you agree that the, fundamentally the, the, the Schumpeterian growth brings about much higher rates of economic growth and practically all of modern society is based on it? Yes. And uh, could you elaborate on those two? Well, look, if I exchange with you, and that's what we do. You have uh, a Coke, I have a bottle of water, and we, you, we, you, you need, not need, let's not use the word need, but we, we make an agreement to exchange. We're both made better off, a little bit. Uh, and then if we do this in the world, we're made a lot better off by the United States specializing in making agricultural machinery and Ukraine specializing in growing the wheat that uses the agricultural machinery. So that's nice. But you can show in economics that that um, is limited. At, at least if, if we don't contrast, well, I don't want to get too, too fancy here, but um, Extensions of trade are good, but they're not really, really good. <laughs> Whereas, I, I said before, the change since 1800 or so in, in our, our ways of doing things, which is what we mean by innovation, has been so enormous that we're 20, 30, a hundred times better off. Right. The, the, the analogy, the analogy would be something like saying that, let's say United States produced shovels yep. and Ukraine produced wheat. We yep. could you trade, know, trade and, and everybody good. would be better off. But if the United States can produce tractors, exactly. which is an Excellent. innovation, Excellent. then you are taking it to a whole new different Excellent. level. Excellent. And indeed, on the on the wheat side, um, if wheat is grown with modern biology. It's better wheat. It just is, uh, um, and and so 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 those yeah that's right on both sides. <laughs> the new stuff and the and the new stuff is all around us, and it's not just the technology, although it's very importantly the technology. Uh, weaving machines that can make uh, enormous carpets. This thing is very very big. 
Um, those were invented in the, in, in the 18th and early 19th century. Uh, the first use of computers, in a sense, card computers with cards, punch cards, was to make rugs in, 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 the, in Britain and then in Belgium. Uh, so, so there's that, but there's also the individual innovation that little people make that are not fancy technologies that nonetheless, if allowed to happen, immensely improve our lives. I decided to start a hairdressing salon, which I need, I admit, in the neighborhood, or I move to the United States from Norway, as some of my ancestors, or Ireland, as my ancestors did. Those moves are in some ways trade-like, like exchange, but they can be epic-making, um, particularly if, uh, you know, the small move like uh, starting Walmart in Arkansas with one store, um, if that turns out to be a really good idea, other people, other people imitate it, and you get this immense change in, in marketing and in, in retail that Walmart, Walmart by itself, has caused in, in the world. So I, I'm, not, I'm not elevating technologists and scientists as Joe Mokir, that, that wonderful historian that you mentioned, who's a very dear friend of mine, he tends to emphasize that too much and not enough the, the liberty part. Liberty part and the little people, yeah, which little takes people. me back to with where we started about the whole business with great enrichment and um, um, and um, um, hierarchy. Yeah. Um, l let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we had the egalitarian past, which mm -hmm. was the hunter-gathering past. Then comes agriculture. Societies become very hierarchical. And note that it's the agricultural revolution, a good thing, which resulted in big cities, therefore in people learning to read and, and inventing reading. Yeah. So but, it, but it creates hierarchy and yep. it, cre it creates a certain level of social stagnation. In fact, a serious social stagnation, whereas it, you are born to a family of Smiths, you are probably going to be Smith and your children are going to be Smith for, yep. you know, for, for generations. When a young person in a Western, liberal, industrial, educated, rich society looks at the society today, mm -hmm. they still see a lot of hierarchy which they resent. So, you yeah. know, rich kids from rich parents going to better schools yeah. um, um, and, and things like that. What would Deirdre Mikulski say to those children vis-a-vis, -vis, compare it to the life before, say, 1600 or before 1700? We are not perfect, right? Right. Well, here's the problem. We're reinventing the life before 1600 in statism. Statism is the real opposite of liberalism, as we, you and I are talking about it. It's again, it's this notion that our uh, that our betters, our masters, know what's good for us, or indeed what's bad for us. But anyway, they're in charge. And the and and 
that's the tendency of the modern world to increase the size of the government. In France, 55% of what French people produce is seized by the government for the government's purposes. Now, sometimes the government's purposes are just what people would want to have anyway, higher education and sanitation, and blah, blah, blah. But it's a very imperfect um, uh, uh, way of choosing what people want. A much better way would be to, to just let them keep their money and then they decide what they want. And but, but you're right. Things are better than they were in Shakespeare's time. In this very sense that people have, now here's the, here's the key phrase. In liberalism, invented in the 18th century, people are to have equality of permission. Not equality of outcome. So envy is not to be the basis for social policy not even equality of opportunity, which sounds, you know, if, if it could be achieved costlessly, I'd want there to be equality of opportunity. But here's the trouble with that phrase, equality of opportunity, as against equality of permission, where we stop making statist laws that you can't be a plumber because the plumber's union is in charge or you can't move, you can't buy from, you can't buy drugs from Canada because the government has told you that it can't. So, so, so Americans pay five times more for drugs than the Canadians do. That's equality of permission to take away all this underbrush of, of, uh, you can't do that. I'm going to tell you what to do. You, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't. But equality of opportunity is impossible. Because we differ in our because innate Because as talents. St. Paul said, we have a variety of gifts. And I, I'm, I'm, I make the joke that I, I chose my parents extremely carefully and wisely. And I deserve full credit. And if my income is higher than yours because my parents were a professor at Harvard and an opera singer, <laughs> I, I deserve it. Now, that's obviously crazy. I didn't choose my parents. So let's see. How are we going to make my opportunities and that of some kid who grew up with bad parents um, equal. Well, let's take away my good parents and the state can force parents to behave badly or it can try to get everyone to behave as well as a professor at Harvard, an opera singer in bringing up their child, which is, you can, you can see it's impossible. It just can't be done. Now, I, I, by the way, I, I, I think there is a state interest in preventing abuse of children. Uh, but people who cannot help themselves. You already mentioned children, uh, maybe the infirm. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But 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 even so, a certain amount of intervention into ordinary families—not ordinary families—the the, the the pathologies of chaining up your child in the basement and feeding her on 
bread and water for 10 years. That I'm against, and I want the police to go in and stop it. But, but to achieve equality of opportunity is basically impossible. So let's just uh, sum this Where, up. Whereas, no, but, but observe, observe. Yeah. Equality of permission is possible. Yeah. It's not remote. It's very easy to do. Just stop bossing people around. Because everybody deserves the same dignity of being treated Just equally exactly. before the law. Exactly. It's the dignity of equality before the law, the law being the state. Because the law is coercive. It should be. We should, if someone breaks into your house and steals all your stuff, I, I don't mind having the, having the cops come and grab that person and put him in jail. That's fine. Let me try to make a sort of broader point out of these different equalities. Yeah, yeah. And let's see if you agree with that. Yeah. So the great innovation of the 18th century is equality before the law. Yep. The idea being that if you are a member of the clergy or the member of the aristocracy, you still have to pay your taxes. That's right. Which previously you perhaps didn't have to. Yeah, in, in France you were exempted That's if right. you were um, in the no nobility, exempted from taxes. And most people in the world accept that equality before the law is a good thing. There may be some outliers, but generally that is Or at is least the, they claim they the, do. Yeah, that's the accepted floor. Yeah, yeah. Then in this country, in the United States, people talk a lot about equality of opportunity, how important it is. Yeah. And I agree with you that it is impossible. Yeah. I love tennis. I've been playing tennis since, uh, since I was the age of five. But I will never have a crack at winning Wimbledon because I don't have the talents of, of Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. Right. So because of these different qualities that people bring to the table, equality of opportunity is unachievable. And then you take it a step further, which is the equality of outcome. Yeah, and there's that small matter of 100 million people who have died last century trying to create equality of outcome. Yeah, and I yeah. think that the broader point I'm trying to make is that I think that because we think of equality of, as being something good, we are always searching or trying to improve on that equality, yeah. build yeah. on it. But it doesn't work like that, does it? The, 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 the history of ideas or ideas themselves don't work like that. Sometimes you do reach a peak yeah. of uh, of, of sort of societal achievement with equality before the law. And when you start moving beyond that, you're causing more harm than good. Yeah, look, do you agree with that? Look, sure, sure. Nah, sure I do. Um, in science, mathematics, let's take mathematics. Um, Newton was smarter than other people um, and therefore was able to achieve, with, uh, there's a debate about it, also, also Leibniz was smarter than other people. And they were able to achieve the invention of calculus. Well, great. Um, I'm all for it. And then everyone's better off if we allow a certain inequality to express itself. For the genius to rise to the top. For the genius to rise to the top. The great fo football player, um, we voluntarily pay to watch him do the... Uh, What's it called? The uh, the turn. This guy who played for Barcelona a long time. The, anyway, <laughs> I don't I don't understand soccer very well, but so excellence, even if it comes from inherited good parents is something we want to encourage in the world.
Um, and that, that's, that's okay. If, if we're envious and insist, no, we're going we're to have equality, as you said, it's been tried out, a kind of equality, although even under Soviet communism, things weren't equal. Uh, well, oddly enough, by aiming at equality of outcome, they have actually undermined equality before the law, where the society was presided over by almost a feudal class of people who were exempted. That's an excellent point, which I haven't quite, uh, uh, which I haven't qu qu quite thought of before. In order to achieve equality of outcome, as against this equality of permission, which is letting people alone, you have to have such a powerful state that equality before the law is temptingly attacked. Um, the vision of Lenin in the Soviet Union was of e equality. In fact, in fact, come to think of it, the three Soviet constitutions in their history, there's one in the 20s, one in the 30s, and one I think in the 1970s, they're beautiful documents they say we're going to be equal and of course we're going to obey the law. We're never going to invade your house and drag you out for, uh, for it, free press. They all say it. We're going to have a free press and oh, it's going to be beautiful. And as you just articulated, the problem is that a state powerful enough to do that by compulsion, which is what states do, they have to, state says, uh, uh, as Max Weber said, is defined as a monopoly of violence and should be. Uh, a state powerful enough to do that is a wonderful instrument for stealing from people, is a wonderful instrument for having, it, it, said, it said it's true that in the gulag, in the s system of work camps, jails, prisons in the Soviet Union. <laughs> there were stratifications according to your status in the Communist Party. If you were sent to, if you were a commissar and you made a mistake, according to the top commissar, you were sent to a fancier gulag than someone who was just a worker. Um, and, in, you know, a spectacular example of this is Putin, Putin's, Putin's rule in Russia, which started as a free economy and has become increasingly a kleptocracy. The richest person in the world is not Jeff Bezos. The richest person in the world is Putin. Having stolen something like a trillion dollars right. over his 20 years in power. That's right. Um, so, the, the reason why I wanted to talk about that is because I think that a lot of young people, especially, are looking at the society today and they see all of these imperfections and they yeah. are dreaming up yeah. um, societies that would have perfect social mobility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, would have none of these uh, yeah. imperfections um, yeah. that, that we talked about. But that's not really how it is. No, um, liberalism does not promise perfection because perfection is unattainable in this world. That's right. John, the, a, an, an, uh, another person associated with Cato, the great uh, 
political scientist at Ohio State, John, uh, John Mueller, has an excellent book in 1999 called Capitalism and Socialism and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. Now, I wish John hadn't made that joke in the title because no one understands what it means. But here's the theme. He says, look, democracy as it functions, say, in the United States is pretty good. I mean, there are things you can do, little things. If we got rid of the primary system for choosing candidates, that would improve it a bit. And if we did this and we did that, but it works pretty well. So does capitalism, although I don't even like the word capitalism, but so does capitalism. It works pretty well. If you try to go across town <laughs> to the absolute perfection store, it hasn't worked and it keeps not working. The theocracy in Iran isn't, or in, in Saudi Arabia is not good for the people of those countries. Uh, the um, Soviet communism was a real disaster. Mao, extreme, uh, extreme central planning and communism under Mao in China, left the Chinese at $2 a day. And when they adopted equality of permission in the economy, <laughs> not in politics, but in the economy, China went from $2 a day to $45 a day. One point which I always make when talking about human progress is that human progress measures today relative to yesterday. Yes. I, um, it does not concern itself with a utopia, which yeah, comes right. from Greek, utopos, which means no country, meaning that's it's right. not a place. That's right. It's a, a utopianism is an idea yeah. uh, of a perfect society which yeah. cannot be accomplished on this and earth. And we, we've been obsessed with utopias for all of recorded human history. We keep trying to achieve them. And in, and in the modern world, with a lot of educated people, they keep thinking up new utopias. Let's make money ice cream. So it'll melt and then we'll have to make more ice, more money. I mean, any economics professor gets letters all the time for people with suggestions of achieving, achieving utopia. People who know nothing about economics or history will come up with these things more or less endlessly. And they don't work. That's John Mueller's point that it's pretty good. Don't mess with it too much. I mean, this was again Adam Smith's point that you make adjustments. He's not against progress. He's not against changing laws a little bit. But this kind of with this kind of thing that happened in the French re Revolution, about the time that Adam Smith died, uh, was attempting to achieve a utopia. The way I think about the difference between, uh, say, conservatism, liberalism, and progressivism, yeah, is that uh, conservatives sort of look at the current state of society and say, "This is the." 
best that we can hope for, let us sort of freeze it in time. Or, or they look at the 1950s and say, this was the best time and we need yeah, to go back to it. Um, but the point is that it is not open to innovation. Exactly. Progressivism on the other side of the political spectrum yep. basically says everything in society is rotten. Yep. Therefore, let's burn it down yep. and then we are somehow going to um, figure out a perfect society and, and then sprinkling of magic dust and voila, you are in utopia. Both these are afraid of the future. The conservatives are afraid of the future because it's not like the past. The progressives are afraid of the future because they because they don't want it to be, they, they want it to be this way instead of that way, and they know what it should be. Whereas liberals, they're not kind of in the middle, people talk that way, but they're not really in the middle. They have a, an optimistic, generous faith in the future. Now, that's not gonna be perfect, but if, if, we, if we have free adults, running around innovating, we're going to do pretty well. And how do we know that? Because it's happened in the last couple of centuries. When it was tried, liberalism worked. When either conservatism or uh, um, progressivism has been thoroughly tried, it hasn't worked. I would only add to that that, that functionally, um, liberalism offers a way out of the sort of conservative stagnation without getting too drunk on a utopian future. Exactly. That's we believe an in, in taking the, the, the rules as we find them, yeah. figuring out what works, what doesn't, and the things that doesn't get adjusted over time yeah. until we end up in a country where black people are no longer enslaved, women have a vote, gays can marry, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but that's a different proposi proposition from uh, saying, let's start anew, year yeah, zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's, of course, what they said in the French Re Revolution. They, sh they said it was year zero. So liberals preserve, keep a, a sense of appreciation of the rules as they find them. We, we sort of assume that the rules are there for a reason before but, we change them, no? But yes, they absolutely do. But it's not the rules. It's not the institutions. It's the spontaneous orders in the middle that we respect and the others don't. And the spontaneous orders are the result of free adults interacting. My friend uh, Howard, the, the, the great sociologist, Howard, Howard Becker, um, not my colleague Gary Becker, the economist, but the sociologist, speaks of worlds where people are negotiating with each other and making trades and so on. And it's, I don't, I don't think Howie understands that it's liberal economics that he's talking about, but that, that's what it is. And it's, it's not just the rule of law. I mean, conservatives talk about the rule of law and they often mean laws like the, the American income tax system that are good for them. Uh, and I say, that's spinach, and I say to hell with it. Um, it's, the, it's the worlds, as Howie would say, that we 
in which we allow each other to try out things in this optimistic way that that liberals have. So the world is stagnant and highly stratified, hierarchized until relatively recently. We refer to ourselves as moderns. Yeah. Because something happened circa 1750 or so, which changes the society beyond all recognition. I like to say that if you are born 4000 BC in ancient Egypt, you would feel just just right at home in ancient Rome or 1000 AD during the Norman Conquest. I completely agree. But if you were born in 1500s and then you re-enter the world, somehow you get transported via time machine to 1900, it's completely different. It is. What happens? Well, what happened is an ideological change in Northwestern Europe, starting in Holland in the 16th and 17th century, but really coming to maturity in Britain, that is England and Scotland in the 18th century, at least as an idea, the Englishman's freedoms. but, you know, gradually expressed because the only people who could vote were people with, with substantial property and m- many of them couldn't vote. <laughs> so in, in, in Britain uh, and then and in the United States, the same thing. All men and women, dear, are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that was written by a slave owner. So it's <laughs> highly imperfect. And then you gradually enfranchise, so to speak, more and more people. We finally overturned Jim Crow in the South, the inability of blacks to vote or to... <laughs> the other day, a United States senator named Brown from Indiana advocated states' rights in laws against interracial marriage, which we had until a Supreme Court decision in 1967 overturned laws such as that of Virginia that blacks and whites couldn't marry. Uh, So this, this is conservatism gone completely off the rails when you're, when you want to get back to the, the world of the 1950s, even in matters of uh, interracial marriage or the treatment of gays or, 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 or Well, good luck to him. He's not going to make it very far, is he? Uh, I hope he gets thrown out of office in the next possible election. But, you know, a lot of kids leaving colleges or even high schools in America today will say, Dedra, why did it take 150 years? Yeah, that's right. Um, why did it take so long before women got a vote? Yeah. Doesn't that mean that um, the whole system, the constitution, what this country was built on is all wrong because it wasn't born perfect, like Athena fully armed, springing out of Zeus's Loin, was it? Yes, yeah, <laughs> loins, like and, and then on the, um, on, the, on the shell, Venus on the half shell, we say. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I once felt this way. You did? When, oh, absolutely. When I was a young person, I was a socialist. 
um, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, in, in 1959, I thought revolution was a great idea. There's a kind of romance to it, of course. Uh, we will build the world again, said Thomas Paine. We have the power to build the world again. Now, I admired Tom Paine. He was a, uh, he, he, he was a liberal in most ways. But this idea of um, this, this romantic, and it, 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 I, I say that with, in a more or less precise way, the romantic movement in Germany, which then spread to the rest of, of Europe, um, emphasized the power of the artist, elevated the artist to the status of a superman. And it's that that caused the proliferation of utopias in the modern world. This idea that one man, Lenin or Mao or uh, uh, I don't know, Hitler can make a society as though it were a work of art, as though it were a sculpture. Uh, one might say even clay. That can clay be indeed, clay indeed. We, we have the government, I'm in charge of it, I'm the Fuhrer, I'm Mussolini. I remake the society. And that's where the attraction comes. It's like rock music or something. It's, it's this creation that excites you. And, and the problem that liberalism has is that it's boring. Uh, there's a Swiss-English writer um, who speaks of his hometown of, of Zurich as being boringly bourgeois. But he admires that. He says, look, people are doing very well in Zurich, not because of top-down Swiss bureaucracy, but because they're free and bourgeois. But, you know, when you're 18, your dad is this boring guy who goes to the office and your, your mom goes to the office too in the modern world. And oh, they're stupid. It's sort of like the attitude of that people develop, intelligent, bright kids at age 14 are very likely to become atheists. They're raised in the Anglican church or the Baptist church or something. And they say, oh, that's stupid. My stupid teachers and parents, they believe all that stuff. I don't believe in God, to hell with it. And the same is true of the boring stuff that they don't understand. Because what, what they don't understand is this spontaneous order in the middle. They don't understand the way art, science, friendship, language, the economy actually operates. They, they have no understanding of it. The other thing that um, puzzles me about the criticism of liberalism, that it hasn't come already 
perfect. That yeah, it yeah. took a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about long time. What is a long time? Uh, you know, we, we as anthropo anthropocenes, we've been around for about 7 million years. You're right. As Homo sapiens, we've been around between 200 or 300,000 years. The agricultural revolution begins anywhere between 10 and 12,000 years. Yeah. Then it's the age of empires and slavery and conquest and genocide and that sort of thing. And liberalism emerges 200 years ago. Yep. Changes the world. Yeah. And yet somehow people still feel like we have moved too slowly. That's well, on one level we have moved too slowly. I, I wish we had all of these liberal policies toward women, sexual minorities and so on much earlier. However, on what planet, on what planet would you expect a new idea yeah. which promises to completely yeah. rework the entire society and yeah, how yeah. individual human beings see each other to be adopted immediately in its complete form by absolutely everyone? That's an excellent point, and it's true. I mean, I'm a historian as well as an economist. Um, I, I'm fond of saying I love dead people. The more dead, the better. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. On, on the scale of, uh, of even agricultural society, which as you say, eight or um, 10,000 years ago in nine different parts of the world was invented. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a moment. I mean, there's, there, there, we, we, we talk in economic history of the hockey stick not a field hockey stick that bends back, but an ice hockey stick. This thrills um, Czech men and, and Swedish men and Canadian men. They all get excited if you talk about hockey sticks. And here it is. You start 300,000 BC with the Homo sapiens and goes along at $2 a day, $2 a day, $2 a day. Well, about here you invent agriculture goes up a bit, whoop, then it goes back to $2 a day because that's the Malthusian pressure of population. Um, and then it comes up to here, Malthus writes his book in 1798 that says, oh, we're fated. It's hopeless. Look at all the $2 a day. There's nothing going to happen. Almost at the moment that Malthus writes that population is really a big problem, it goes like this, income per head, and other things than income per head, music, art, uh, science, goes like this. It's very, very important to have the sound effect. And it goes, the camera. I got it. it just completely explodes the world, as you say, in this tiny little period, way at the end. And then people say, oh, well, it's not perfect. Let's get something perfect here. It's like a marriage. Uh, if you're, if I you're, wouldn't know, but do tell. Well, I, well, your your partner, whether man or a woman. Um, I was married for thirty years. My marriage wasn't perfect, but very good. And, you know, what what we're gonna, we have to have a perfect marriage, or it's or we're gonna we're gonna as you say, burn down the institution of marriage, although my, my hero, my heroine, Mae West, a great movie, vaudeville and movie comedian of the 30s and 20s and 30s, she, 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 she wrote her own stuff and 
She had this line, I'm in favor of the institution of marriage, but I'm not ready for an institution which turns on the, the, the vocabulary in English where institution means a madhouse. That's right, being <laughs> institutionalized. That's right, being institutionalized. So perfect perfection is not attainable. And if we pursue it... Okay, then what is to be done, uh, to quote Lenin? I mean, um, um, you know, there is, there is an undoubted anger and dissatisfaction with the liberal society as we have, um, as, 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 as it has evolved over the last 200 years. Um, and uh, really, I think that the only way that today can be measured is by looking into the past. Yeah, that yeah. means studying history. And I don't see much hunger amongst young people yeah. for history. No. We cannot force them to learn history. Well, I try to, but it doesn't work. Um, I'm, I have taught 430 undergraduates at a time in a single class. The second half, we called it a Western civilization, 1648 to the present. And it's a performance. The only way you can get them to pay attention is to make it a show. Yeah, the, you know, the old uh, line, if those who don't remember history are condemned to re repeat it, and you and I agree that we don't want to repeat the, the crimes of the past, um, history is like foreign travel. The past, it's been said, is a foreign country. And your personal experience in your life of moving from country to country, mine of travel from country to country, gives a perspective. And we both admire the longer perspective that you get from history. But you can teach the history in ways that even young people don't find boring. Um, with his historical drama. But, but, but then the problem is that the artists are mainly socialists. <laughs> the artists are not, for the most part, admirers of this, this liberal um, It's very difficult to come, come up with um, thinking about a Hollywood movie which is about an inventor or innovator. There, there are only a few. There are some. Uh, um, the founder um, with, with Michael Keaton playing um, Ray Kroc making McDonald's into what it was. Or, it was or Joy, but, but Joy Mangano, the inventor of the self-squeezing mop. <laughs> Honestly, about the same time as... And there's also a good movie about Alan Turing and his sort of initial work on... That's on right. Music. That's Although right. they emphasized um, his sexual orientation rather than yeah. his uh, rather than his mathematical yeah, that's right. genius, um, I understand that. But um, um, but but it does seem to me that um, uh, history does play a very important role here, and we need to find a better way of teaching well, people about history. We, what we need to do is to get the artists on our side. The artists were once great exponents of liberalism. 
Beethoven changed the name of a symphony in aid of a free society. The story being it was number five. Yep. And it was, he was admiring Napoleon. And when he realized that Napoleon was a bloodthirsty tyrant, as he undoubtedly was, he changed his mind. Now look, not, he didn't just change his mind, he changed his symphony <laughs> and, and uh, Ode to Joy became, you know, come on, this is great stuff. And it inspires people to become free adults. We have this way of thinking about politics that we can't get out of, which is left, which is left, I'll, I'll do it as though, anyway, left and right. And the events in Ukraine, we're, we're speaking now in March of uh, 2022, have an opportunity to switch the axis, to get ordinary people who don't pay a lot of attention to political theory or, polit or even politics to see that the big choice is between tyranny and freedom. Putin. Putin's invasion of U Ukraine contrasts two countries. One is a tyranny, one is not. And uh, I, I think the worldwide revulsion against Putin's action is, is, is a promising sign that when it's made clear to them through historical study or travel or uh, rock music or whatever, what the difference between freedom and tyranny is, they prefer freedom. Now, not everyone wants to be an adult. As I said, you could call the cause of freedom adultism. Um, some people prefer to be children forever and have mama and papa make all the the decisions. In fact, Putin in the last, in his reign of over 20 years, has been very successful in teaching the Russian people to go back to having a czar. Um, and uh, so there's got to be a kind of re-education of that, 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 that sad country. What happened in art? You say that um, artists used to be liberal, classical liberal. They did. Um, I mean, in the early 19th century, they virtually all were. I mean, there were, there were some exceptions. But, and actually, Romanticism had versions that were conservative, but, but in a kind of liberal way. I mean, it was, it was nice. <laughs> right, and uh, this would go with the artistic sort of character is that you are rebelling against the stultifying power of the church, of the nobility. But you know, that's Hierarchy. very, very modern. And that's liberalism um, against the old hierarchies. Dutch art in the 17th century in the so-called golden age was not against the old hierarchies. Um, Raphael, was not against the old hierarchies. They were hired by the old hierarchies. <laughs> the church and the uh, state 
paid them to paint propaganda in favor of monarchy, say. It's only in the 19th century and really, yeah, in the, in the early 19th century, the romantic movement in, say, painting um, glorifies rebelling, as you just said, against the old hierarchies. And by the late 19th century, and someone like uh, Van Gogh, or as we Dutch call it, Van Gogh, it's a lovely language. Um, it's it's against. It starts to be against everything, and then in the, in the, in the twentieth century, there are many artists, Picasso being an example, who are simply uh, simply nihilists. Um, against the wonderfully uh, generous and uh, uh, art of. Ma of Matisse. So is, is this something that uh, we are stuck with forever? Given that United States is broadly speaking a free market economy, well, I would yeah. call it a mixed economy, but whatever. Um, as a general rule, market mechanism is still allowed to perform its functions relatively, relatively freely. And even in Sweden, by the even, way. Even in Sweden. Um, and, and because that is the dominant, by, by no means, uh, it is dominant system of, of economic relations. And, and, and given that artists are sort of um, always, they desire to, to, to create art against the big guy, what they perceive to be the big guy, the dominant force. At least society. modern artists. Too. Modern artists, yeah, that, that's what I meant. Is it because they are on this constant, uh, are in this constant struggle against the big guy, the dominant force in society, that they are bound to be socialists forever? As long as capitalism is here, then the artists will try to take it down, as opposed to in communist days, when I remember that communism was here and the artists were trying to undermine it from the bottom because it was the artists under communism which destroy the system from within. So, so is it like, is it structural? In other words, it's unavoidable. Well, you know, the, um, the modern artist, the modern rebellious artist, which you see in French, beginning in French Impressionism, for example, and then getting more and more like that. When you ask modern artists what they're doing, they're saying, we're criticizing society. And I always get really annoyed by that because they don't know anything about society. I mean, what is a painter? Is a painter an economist and historian and political scientist and philosopher? No, she's a painter. And maybe it would be better if they stuck to their last, as we say. But I. it's a deep problem. Look, when people are intelligent and free, they're free to criticize. Whereas until very late, denying the divinity of Christ in England, the home of our liberties, was a capital offense. And so 
we, there's a deep paradox, or you might say a, a political problem in liberalism that we liberals believe that people should be allowed to say anything they want. And uh, uh, even if it's offensive to other people. Um, and that means that people start chattering offensively. Uh, Tucker Carlson on TV supports Putin. We say, ah, Tucker, stop it. Um, but we allow him to do it. And, and this, this kind of nihilism that comes, uh, that I said in, in, in Picasso and lots of other modern artists, is corrosive. Whereas if you have a fixed ideology, not fixed ideology, that's not quite the word, but a, a, an orthodoxy that must not be tampered with, as in, as in communism or in, in uh, uh, old um, theocracies and so on, then, then there is no corrosion <laughs> until the liberal idea arises. Yeah, you, you, you said it's a problem and I, I agree with you. But of course, one of the great insights of liberalism is that not all problems have a solution. That's we right. don't really know how to um, address the problem of artistic iconoclasm. You're right. Um, and um, maybe that's just one of those things that, um, that will persist until some other problem, in their view, in their eyes, becomes even more serious. So yeah. they have to focus their artistic energies on that. But th th there is one more question that I meant to ask you. I mean, England and Western Europe comes up constantly in your work yes. as the birthplace of liberalism. Yes. And I totally agree that in these three massive volumes, uh, which I'm happy to say I read. These are my babies. Those are your babies. Um, one of your 24 books, but these three are the, the, the trilogy that I dare say made you famous. You do show that liberalism um, takes off these liberal ideas, permissionless society, having, letting people to have a go happens over the last 200 years. But the question that I always meant to ask you is why? is it 200, 250 years ago? Why is the 18th century? Why is it Western Europe that, that begins to take the foot of the neck of the ordinary person? That's, that's your referring to the terrifying vision in George Orwell's 1984, where the party man O'Brien explains to the hero of the book if you want a vision of the future, think of a boot on a human face forever. And that's the ultimate end, I think, or the, the, what's going to happen, what might happen under thoroughgoing um, um, statism, whether conservative or, or progressive. Well, they, the, it happened in England and in Western Europe, as you say, by what I would say are accidents. It's not that there's something deeply liberal about, say, Christianity. 
for for centuries, 17 centuries, Christianity was not a liberal force. In fact, in particular, Roman Catholic Christianity was a monarchy, an absolute monarchy within the limits of the of the secular power of the Pope. Um, and nor is there something about melanin-challenged individuals like you and me, um, who when our ancestors came out of Africa turned left and got into cold places, um, is there something special about Europeans? It's simply not the case that there's a depth of the liberal idea in European civilization that's somehow distinct from other civilizations. There are liberal ideas in Islam, for example, that our, our, our colleague here at Cato is trying to encourage. And there are liberal ideas in Japan pretty much suppressed under the, uh, under the Tokugawa shogunate and under the uh, under the Song Dynasty in China there were liberal ideas in the economy flourishing a thousand years ago so it's not that Europe is we're Europeans and we're better than everyone else and we're going to show you how to be liberal as you said earlier, there's a, you might even think of it as a genetic disposition to liberty in human beings, conditioned by our extremely long experience with hunter-gatherer bands, which are liberal. We, we, we tend to think of them as having a, a chieftain, but that's, that's a later development. Most of these hunter-gatherer bands were very, very small, and you could easily walk away from them. All right, so the, 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 um, the uh, I've, sorry, I've the, lost the, track. No, no, that's quite right. Um, it, it seems to me that what you are saying is that the, the agricultural revolution with its hierarchical okay. societies and uh, social immobility yeah, yeah. Um, is a bit of an interlude. And yeah, what yeah, you is. are, I think what you are implying is that liberalism starting 200 years ago in Western Europe and persisting to today is really an attempt to reconnect with those it sort is. of um, uh, freedom loving, egalitarian under the law um, ideas uh, of the hunter-gatherers, or rather, may, maybe that's too far. Maybe saying something like anti-anti-status um, uh, and anti-status, anti-master. You don't have a master in a small hunter-gatherer band. Whereas under in agriculture, there's the lord; he has a sword and a horse, and you're fixed there because you're you depend on your crop, and your crop just sits there. And so some guy comes with a sword and a horse and says, so sorry, 
this my land now, <laughs> too bad for you. Um, so the, that's where the hierarchy comes from. Also the hierarchy of, 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 of priesthood, um, which is um, very ancient. And uh, so those hierarchies are challenged in liberalism. Francis Fukuyama claimed famously that liberal democracy is the end of history. And I think Frank's right. Um, this slow development, or to, to go back to your question, why England? Why Western Europe? This slow accidental development where certain accidents since uh, the, uh, since, since 1517 to be precise, accidentally produced a liberal England. England was not liberal under Henry VIII, believe it, <laughs> or under Elizabeth I or James and Charles. It was illiberal. Why did this, why did this liberal idea arise in what people call the Anglosphere in the 18th century? And the reason is, for example, that the Protestant Reformation was not crushed by Rome. And in particular, the radical Protestant Reformation, the Anabaptists, and the, eventually in England, the Quakers, who didn't have any hierarchy at all in church governance, unlike my Anglicanism, um, they gave people the idea that you can be free in your religious life, entirely new idea, so maybe we can be free in other parts of our life. Again, if the Spanish Armada in 1588 had been able to land the best army in Europe by far, the Spanish army, on the south coast of England, England might have been forced back under the, uh, under the Roman Church, Holland would have been much more isolated than it was, and maybe the Counter-Reformation would have comprehensively won, in which case liberalism would have been long delayed in Europe. And so it went. A series of accidents, which I talk about in the, in the, in the third volume, of the trilogy uh, happened to make this highly liberal society, England, into a nascent liberalism. How important was uh, interjurisdictional competition in allowing um, liberal ideas to survive? The, the yeah. point made by Stephen Davis uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, Institute of Economic Affairs in London is that everywhere else in the world you have empires. That's right. In China, Ottoman Empire. And what empires are primarily interested in is domestic security, stability. Right. They are not worried about being attacked from the outside because they are too large they're to be too big. consumed by anybody else. Right. So what they're primarily uh, concerned about is domestic opposition. And whenever somebody starts saying something they don't like, just heads get chopped off. Steve is absolutely right in his 
he, he has a, a marvelous uh, book. Um, which Europe which, was different, though. Europe was different in the sense that it didn't have an empire. Exactly. Internally. It didn't. It didn't. Now there were attempts. Charlemagne did a fairly good job of gathering together large parts of Europe, but his sons split it up into three parts, and then it kept splitting and splitting and splitting. G Germany, the the German lands, even after um, 1648, um, had hundreds of polities. Lord, 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 sorry, my stuttering, Lord, the bishops, many states, uh, free states uh, in the empire, um, the empire being Austrian or Austrian Spanish, Habsburg, um, states like Prussia, which is said some most most st states have an army. In Prussia, the army had the state. Um, and, and even unified polities like France or, or England, um, it was easy to escape from them. So when John Locke was under threat from James II, uh, who wanted to make Britain, England at that time, back into a Catholic nation was under threat. He could flee to Holland and did, and was greatly influenced by Dutch ideas. Holland itself was a collection of, of towns that competed with each other um, even. And so this competitive environment was, was a good thing. Now. It, it's, it's easy to exaggerate the efficacy of empire. The Roman Empire, for example, people think, well, everything was decided in Rome. Not really. Um, the, the state capacity, as we say in modern terminology, of Rome or China or the, or the, 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 the empires of India or the Ottoman Empire, was somewhat limited. So local autonomy could, could happen. But I think S S Steve is absolutely correct to emphasize the astonishing lack of unity in Europe. And look, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, <laughs> and for that matter, Stalin, all tried to unify Europe, the Pope, in the in the in the investiture controversy, tried to do the same. Louis the Fourteenth, Charles the Fifth, they all tried to create. Louis the Fourteenth, Charles the Fifth, you're right. They they all kept trying and they failed. And the point being is that when you are a small country, and you are at all times at risk of being subsumed by somebody else. Yeah, yeah. You've got to start allowing greater degree of liberalism within your own country because it leads to greater growth and innovation yeah, and yeah, so forth. Yeah. And that allows you to also defend yourself. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And this happened over and over again. Uh, um, uh, certainly it's the English case, but it's, uh, it's, it's also the case of the Italian city states in the 
northern Italy. But, but there's always a choice. You can either try to enforce, say, censorship, as the French state tried to do all the time, uh, or, or the French in the 18th century were enforcing protectionism for wool cloth by um, executing people who imported calico cloth. It's astonishing. Or sending them to the galleys in the Mediterranean for a term of 15 years. Um, so they kept trying to do it. To, to, to have a unified government control. That's right. France. Exactly. I, I only recently learned that France didn't have a single market within France until the, uh, until the re revolution. That's false. That's that, false? That's completely false. The, the, well, no, it, it depends what you mean by a single market. If you mean that there were laws that, ob that obstructed the movement of grain, yeah, that's true. They did. That's what I meant, yeah. But nonetheless, the prices, the economic outcome, uh, because there is enough leakage in all this made for a unified na na national market in grain. So, so it's, it, it's easy to exaggerate how much the laws could constrain the economy of France. But still, um, as uh, that great li liberal Alexis de Tocqueville said in his book on the Ancien uh, Regime and the French Revolution, he was contrasting France with Britain and making the point that the French kept doing these status stupidities like exempting nobles from taxes. Of course, there was a, there was a vigorous market in buying nobilities from the state, from the king. And, and the, so the nobility gradually expanded because, boy, if you could be exempted from taxes, wouldn't that be wonderful? It, it almost seems to me like your, the, the sort of broad scope of history that emerges from, from this discussion is that when we were hunter-gatherers, we had freedom, but we had nothing. We were dirt poor. Agricultural revolution, you're relatively well off. Well, you're certainly better off, but no, you not. lose your freedom. No, you're not. You're not better off. You're originally better off, but then Malthusian pressures drive you back to $2 a day. But the side benefit, of course, of the, of the, uh, the, the, Toltecs, in Central America and the, and, and the Chinese and the South Asians and the this and the that, inventing writing. And by the way, uh, place value for, uh, for numbers um, is that you get, you get this, how can I say, this machine of literacy, which then turns back on the society and changes it. Mm -hmm. And, and the, 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 that's why Steve's point about the comparatively free uh, presses of Europe is so important. In the 18th century in China, a man <coughs> who had had the boldness to publish, to print 
the um, character for the emperor, which was illegal, was executed and his entire family was sold into slavery. Now that's effective censorship. But in Europe, look, the famous case, the kind of amusing case, is Christopher Columbus, who shopped his idea of going west with a small fleet to England, to Italy's various Italians, to the Spaniards, and finally the, uh, the, the Spanish crown financed his voyage. And, and whereas the Chinese were irritated by Japanese pirates, so to solve that problem, they moved the entire population of the coast of China 20 miles inland. Now, you know, it's a complete... And they ended the entire naval... The entire, they, they, had, they had much better ships as late as the 15th century than the European so-called Chinese junks were the size of modern ocean liners. They were gigantic and very good. And then they said, no, no, we're not going to have any of that because the central power could do it. And, and, and the problem with, 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 with tyranny in the absence of this many, many, many centers is that you get um, one person or a small group of people making all, making all the, 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 the decisions. And they, if they make a mistake, it's really bad. Whereas, I don't know, if Portugal does something bad, Spain can do something good. But that's the, the, so that's the, that's the second age that we are talking about. Now, uh, just to conclude on this, it seems yeah. to me like you are saying we are moving into a third age, which will give us the benefit of unimaginable prosperity minus hierarchy. That's right. But the danger is that statism is popular. And that's why it's so important that people get that it's not left and right. The left, I forget which I was calling the left, doesn't matter, I'll, I'll do it from my point of view now. The left or, and the right are, are not, are both statist. <laughs> the left wants to use the state to, uh, in its view, to equalize people. The right wants to use the state to make the people good. So the left use ordinary citizens like you and me as sad. Oh, you poor thing, I'm gonna help you. I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Although, you know, that can take nasty forms too. And then the right says, you and I are bad. We're not Christian enough. Or we're not, uh, we're, we're, anyway, we're bad. We're dangerous and bad. So we should send more police to stop you from being bad. Sad and bad. They still, both of them want big governments. Government, they want this family model, either a sweet mother who's very indulgent, oh, you sad child, or a kind of tough father, oh, you bad child. That's what they want. 
Whereas we liberals, again, it's showed so well in the, in the invasion uh, of Ukraine. We say, no, no, the right axis is tyranny versus freedom. Yeah. And um, I think it's worth emphasizing that um, we are, historically speaking, at a very special point in time. Yeah where so much good stuff had been accomplished. You bet. And I think that, uh, um, you know, one problem is that perhaps we are not grateful enough. We're not grateful For where enough. we are and how we got here. But you yourself in your life, in some ways, exemplify um, the broadening circles of empathy, the increasing toleration that, even though imperfect, is still significantly greater than what it was before. I joked with you before that 200 years ago, you know, people would be chasing us around the village with, with pitchforks. You and they, me both. Yes, yeah. because, you know, we don't subscribe to, or, or rather, you know, uh, our, our lifestyles are not uh, congruent with, with, with yeah, the mainstream. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. So, um, I, I guess I would like to know more about your own journey, uh, both intellectually, you called yourself a Marxist, yeah, uh, but also personal. Well, I was, uh, um, I was, uh, I, I defined myself from age eleven on. When I finally got so I could tolerate it and not was not so deeply ashamed as a heterosexual crossdresser. I loved women. I was married for thirty years to the the love of my life, Joanne. Um, but. Every once in a while, I, w I, I would cross-dress. That is, I would wear women's clothing secretly. And Joanne knew about it. And we kind of agreed that it's some little thing that Donald does. That was my name, Donald. And that it, it, we both construed it as no big deal. Um, and that it, there are lots of men, it's rather common, who do this cross-dressing thing. Actually, the advantage of being an XX person, namely a born uh, woman, is that you can cross-dress and no one cares. You can go around in blue jeans and a man's shirt and they still say, oh, oh isn't that cute? Whereas a man who wears a dress in public is gonna be in, is they're, 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 gonna, bring out, they're gonna bring out the pitchforks. Um, so it was, um, a very successful marriage, a couple of kids, um, and uh, in, my f in my 53rd year, I started to explore cross-dressing clubs, and surprise, surprise, most people don't know this, there, there are cross-dressing clubs in your town. And these men get together and they're just guys, and they talk about the Chicago Bears or automobile repair, and they're guys. And occasionally they dress up as women. It's like, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, a foot fetish or something. It's not very important. And then in my 53rd year, I started going to these clubs, and I realized it came on a, on a September day in 1995. As the, as the English say, I twigged. I got it. 
I realized that I was not a heterosexual cross-dresser. I wanted to be a woman. Now look, every cell in my body says XY, XY, XY. You're a born man. And conservatives uh, say, you know, shut up and be a man. And I didn't want that. And so, in a free society, I was able to change. Now, in 1995, when this happened, it was still somewhat unusual. There had been pioneers like Jan Morris, the Welsh um, uh, 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 journalist and travel writer and historian, who had done it 20 years before. Um, but still in 1995, it was, it was unusual. And thank God, now it's become rather commonplace. You know, say, I say, well, I'm, I'm actually a trans woman. I was once Donald, now I'm Deirdre. And they say, oh, that's interesting. Say, how about those, uh, how about those Yankees? They, they don't care anymore. Especially the young people don't care. It, it still has the capacity to shock people my age. I'm quite old. Um, uh, but not, not the kids. That's a massive change. It is. I mean, it's certainly when it comes to acceptance of homosexuality, we saw tremendous change uh, beginning perhaps in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, we tend to forget that uh, the Lawrence decision came in 2003, I think. Yeah, yeah. That was a Texas sodomy uh, decision. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after that, sort of things just start to snowball until a majority of Americans supports gay marriage and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, obviously, when it comes to transsexualism, the, the 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 step, the mental step that needs to be taken, goes a step further. Sure. And therefore, you know, one would one would say that uh, here's another example of um, of society just becoming much more tolerant. How, how did that come about, do you well, think? Well, it's, it's, it's another one of these spontaneous orders. We think of it in terms of law, and the law is important. Marriage between the races was illegal in the South, and even in Illinois, I believe, until quite late. Um, but the, the spontaneous working of a of a, of a liberal society. You know, one of the big problems with these, these people, on my, my dear friends on the left, my dear friends on the right, is that they think society can be solved once for all. I think that's what we were driving at earlier when we were talking about this contrast between liberals and the left and the right. Liberals on the one hand, left and the right and the other. The liberals are in favor of experimentation, piecemeal experimentation. Let's try this. Let's try that. Oh, that's good. Let's go with that. And that's how an economy actually progresses. And you're saying quite, quite correctly that that's how a society progresses. Because I think it's a rather obvious ethical improvement that you don't jail male homosexuals. Uh, and uh, um, there, are, there are people on the right who would want to shoot me. And in Saudi Arabia, 
I would be. I'd be stoned to death. So um, it's, it's the belief on the left and the right that they, each of them, has the formula for the end of society. And uh, for, again, to get uh, Frank uh, uh, Fukuyama's point, the end of society, uh, the, the end of politics, the end of history, he calls it, is actually an extremely creative, spontaneous order of liberalism. Whereas the left and the right say, no, 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 no. We know what society should be like, and here's what it should be like. Shut up and do it. And would you agree that the, the kernel of, of where we are today is basically 18th century um, understanding of, of, of liberty? Very much so. Because once you start expanding the circle of empathy, once yep. you're starting bringing more and more people in, then whoever remains on the outside, it begins to look weird. Of course it does. And so at some point, once you internalize the notion that equality before the law mm -hmm. is what is good, yeah. what, what we want to maintain and explore, then giving people the right to change their gender um, oh, yeah. becomes just a... Although, although it's crucial that equality before the law does not mean obey the law regardless or um, whatever the law is, is just. There's a nice story. Didn't happen, I suppose, but it, it illustrates the point of a of an Indian, a South Asian, defending to a British administrator of the Raj the custom of, of, of sati, where the widow of the man who had just died would be cast into the flames of his funeral pyre or encouraged to jump in, okay? My husband's died, I, I can't live anymore <coughs> into the flames. And the, in the story, the, the Indian man is, says, well, don't you understand, oh, oh British administrator, this is our custom, this is our law. And the, ed, Administrator says, yes, geez, I understand that. I'm very sympathetic with this view. But you know, we have a law too, that people who throw people into the flames get hanged. <laughs> so which law it is, is crucial. The law against interracial marriage, the law against um, gay marriage, the law against uh, transgendered. Uh, for a long time, there were in the United States, of course, it was a period from the 1870s to the 1990s, as you point out, there was a period of rather fierce legislation against men dressing in public in women's clothing. All over the United States, there were these laws that they, the, the justification for the law was, in my mind, completely insane. It was viewed as, as um, uh, or it was, it was defended as 
this would be terrible because then people could hold up banks and then change their clothing and you wouldn't be able to catch them. That, that was their justification. Um, but of course, what it was really about is revulsion at a man crossing this gender barrier. It was never really a problem for women crossing the gender barrier, although there was kind of gentle jokes about it, but not anything very serious, whereas it was illegal all over the United States. Um, and then those, those laws were overturned. So equal justice under law, I'd put the emphasis on equality, equality of permission under law. Um, under law, because there have got to be laws, I agree with you. But not law, all laws are not created equal. But you're absolutely right that the germ, the kind of germ of it all, is um, in the phrase of Thomas Jefferson, all men are created equal. And uh, at the time he wrote it in 1776, it was, had become among advanced intellectuals in the West a commonplace. It was not that he thought it up. It was, goes back to Locke and, it, 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 and, um, and so forth. And, you know, it's not, not, it wasn't that shocking an idea. But of course, the problem was that Tom owned slaves, and he owned slaves who were his children by Sally Hemings. And on his death in 1826, he didn't free them. He didn't free his own children. You know, this is, so it was slow coming, but as you said, the absurdity of one person owning another, having just said that they're equal, became more and more evident and, 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 and slavery will, Slavery was not quite the first one. It was, in, in the United States, it was the second one. The first one in the United States was freeing poor men to vote. Um, property qualifications were very popular with, with the Federalists, such as Alexander Hamilton. And that same Jefferson said, no, 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 no. We, or, or he said more exactly, Everyone should have property and then they should vote because they would have independence. But then slavery became the great embarrassment. Then in 1848, the women said, wait a second, we've been very active in the anti-slavery movement in, the, in a, a gathering in Seneca, New York. What about us? And Slowly, slowly, finally with women got the vote. In some Swiss cantons, they didn't get the vote until 20 years ago. 1991, I think. 1991, yeah. there you are, about 30 years ago. What's your message for the young people out there? Well, the young people is to take, well, what's my message for the young people out there? Based on where you've come from, Work what hard. you have seen. Work hard, but look, when I'm advising young transgendered people, I don't do it a lot, but I sometimes do, I'm called on to do it. I say, look, don't think that your gender transition is gonna solve all your problems, it's not. You'll be ecstatically happy if you're 
a man when you were a woman or a woman when you were a man and you wanted to do it on that score. But what you should do is work hard at your, at your day job. <laughs> Get educated. Get, find, move to a free country <laughs> if you're in a place that isn't free. I actually come to think of it, I'm thinking of an Iranian man who wants to transition. I don't want to reveal too much about him. He's a, he's a, he's a journalist. And he, he's, I helped him a little bit. I, not, I don't want to say that I was the great savior here, but I helped him get admitted to Spain um, where he can transition if he wants. And that, that okay, so that, that's the kind of advice I give. Find a free society, a liberal society, move from, I don't know, I don't want to, characterize it too much from a conservative state to a really liberal state um, in, inside the United States and pursue your dreams I guess is the cliche way of Hollywood cliche way of uh, putting it but pursuing your dreams means taking responsibility so take responsibility for your life don't blame your parents on it go for it we don't talk a lot about responsibility these days, but I think it's so fundamental to understand that if freedom is to work, it needs to be accompanied by responsibility. Absolutely, I completely agree. By the way, the very word responsibility is very new. It was not used this way in English or in any other language until it started to be used the way we use it now. It's a very big word now. It's responsibility is really important. Um, around 1800. It, uh, it, it, it came out of legal jargon. Uh, the, the older version of it, as you can find out, it was um, that you must respond to a court order. That's what it meant. And by 1800, it had become, started to become this enormous take responsibility for your own life and go for it. Well, I hope that a lot of people in the world have the sort of um, freedom that we have in our lives. Yeah. In America in 2022, it may not be a perfect society, but it is much better than many, many other places in the world and certainly much better than, uh, than what it used to be. Yeah. So thank you very much for this wonderful interview. I much appreciate it. Maybe we'll get to do another one sometime in the future. I hope so too. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very, you know, have mouth will talk. Although I'm fond of saying that there's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. You learn more by listening to what the other's saying and then responding than just making one speech after another. I fully agree. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Thank you.